Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Kani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our guest today is a lecturer in development and environment at the Department of Geography, University of Sheffield in the UK. His research interests are situated around climate and energy justice. He inquires on justice questions working at the nexus of culture, knowledge and politics, conceptually drawing from post-colonial and anti-colonial studies, critical development studies and environmental geographies. He was a postdoctoral researcher at the School of Innovation Sciences, Eindhoven Institute of Technology from 2016 to 2020, where he researched social and institutional aspects of off-grid smart energy systems and taught on issues of globalization, development and sustainability at various undergraduate and postgraduate levels. He also worked in a small Indian consultancy firm on carbon finance and feasibility assessment of small-scale renewable energy projects in South Asia. He has a PhD in from Durham University where his thesis was on social and cultural aspects of access to modern energy in rural India. He has a BSc degree in botany with honors from Delhi University and an MSc degree in natural resources management from the Terry University. I'm excited to welcome our guest Dr. Ankit Kumar. Our interviewer today is Vaishnavi Rathore, who is a land and climate reporter at Scroll Media based in New Delhi in India. She works on stories related to environmental justice and democracy, governance of commons, forests and land rights. Her journalistic stint also includes her time as an environmental associate at The Bastion, a development journalism organization. Before she ventured into full-time environmental journalism, she spent 2 years working on ground with communities and their relationship with natural resources. Her experience in the state of Gujarat with Foundation for Ecological Security exposed her to challenges of localizing governance while working with forest dependent communities in the Himalayan landscapes of Himachal Pradesh introduced her to the Forest Rights Act there she was with Himdhara Environment Collective and was involved in spreading awareness on the act facilitating its implementation researching and advocating for it welcome to the show ankit and vaishnavi thanks so much shahzad for that introduction and welcome ankit on this podcast Thank you Vaishnavi and Sahzad for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Great Ankit. So I spent a lot of time reading your scholarship, your literature and I cannot wait to ask you a lot of questions. Initially when I got to know that you work around renewable energy, I was thinking of very technical questions. I was thinking of targets that India has to achieve and things like that and like whatever microgrids and offgrids and all of those things. And then I came across your paper Culture of Lights and I really wanted to change the entire direction from there. And this particular paper was such an interesting ethnographic work that you have done which is based on in-depth conversations that you have had with residents in state of Bihar in India. And in your paper you trace out these very beautiful ways in which light and culture perpetuate each other. and you also look at how light is connected with honor with hospitality amongst other things so i was wondering just to begin this conversation if you could tell us a little bit about this work specifically what was the inspiration to trace these connections out and when you did trace these connections and like i said we'll talk specifically of bihar in this case do you also find ways in which these connections of culture and light also having some sort of policy implications in light solutions or otherwise 
Thanks for asking that. I'm glad that this paper caught your eye because I don't think I would have been able to answer many technical questions considering that I'm uh, very much a qualitative social scientist. Also, it's quite interesting because this paper is sort of a cornerstone of my argument on why we need to attend to sociocultural aspects for just energy access and transitions. So about a decade when I started this work, there was a key question in my mind. Why do so many electrification projects focus on light? Because at least a decade ago, there were a lot of projects, solar lantern projects, microgrid projects, even the government's electrification project talked a lot about light bulbs, etc. So this question was on top of my mind. Why do so many electrification projects focus on light? And sort of this question then led to another question, which was, what does light mean for people? And why is it so important? And so that became kind of a key part of my inquiry during this fieldwork in Bihar. And because I was focusing on light, actually all of my fieldwork was conducted after dark. So I would go to villages in the evening, just before sundown, and then stay until 9 p.m. or so talking to people and looking around and sort of absorbing everything that was going on. And this was in Bihar. We generally have a sort of a arrogance about our own homes that we know it, we understand these people. But for me, this whole experience was quite revealing in a sense of reminding me of my own stark limitations about how much I didn't know and how much there was to learn. So what I found in Bihar were these connections that I had never thought of before. The ideas of honor and hospitality that some people expressed as reasons for prioritizing bright lights and best lights outside their house and how this meant that those inside the house had to often work with more polluting and dangerous forms of lights, often through kerosene lamps. And we know that in many rural homes, these spaces of inside and outside are highly gendered. Outside spaces often occupied by male members of the household and inside by female members of the household. That was quite interesting and quite revealing. And on top of this, uh, many of these arguments on the inside, outside and honor and hospitality, they also manifest as entrenched caste relationship. So more and brighter lights. If they indeed mean honor in these society, then the wealthy who were invariably in these villages, upper caste families were able to use these forms of light to demonstrate or entrench an idea of honor in the society, as opposed to people who did not have the same kind of wealth or resources at their disposal. And so the use of these sources of light and their place on the preference list kind of contributed to the perception of material possession of people and their honor in the place in the society. And therefore, I've argued in this paper also that this reinforces this social worldly stratification, the social stratification that we see in Indian villages, in a sense. That's so fascinating, especially the caste angle. That's very interesting. And like you said, that it is a reflection of how things really are. And sort of just being on the same theme, like you said, there's a lot of technological innovation and all of that, even when we are talking about smart grids. But you also use a very interesting phrase in one of your papers, which is titled Beyond Technical Smartness, where you recommend, and I'm quoting this from your paper, decentering the technical and looking at other aspects of smartness. So what were these other aspects of smartness that you thought was something that needs to be focused on? And again, if you think that there are some implications of these non-technical aspects of smartness in policy decision making on energy effectiveness, 
Thanks for that. For me, it's a difficult thing to think about also because there has been so much overwhelming discussion, or at least it was five years ago, on the question of smart grids and smart cities in India. It's also kind of a strange phenomenon now that I think back to it. Like about five years ago, it seemed like there was a lot of discussion on smart cities and smart grids, but much of that, it seems, at least to me, it seems to have died down now. There was a lot of government hype about smart cities initiatives and smart grid initiatives. Before I go into more discussion about these non-tech smartness ideas, if you have more insight on what's going on with these smart grids or smart cities now. I think we're right in that way because even as a journalist, I remember a lot of us were very interested in covering how smart cities are really actually turning out to be. And a lot of us were also writing about how it's exclusionary in nature wherein they are communities of people who have been residing in the said city, but they haven't really been a part of this new sort of developments of smart cities. I remember, for instance, in the small town of Dharamshala in Himachal Pradesh, there was so much excitement in this one particular city center because a part of the smart city initiative was to have free Wi-Fi. And there would always be a lot of young people around that city center trying to use the Wi-Fi. So in that sense, you're right. I don't see that similar excitement again when I went to Dharamshala earlier this year. So in that way, I suppose you're right that that excitement and just that conversation at the government's level also seems to have died down right now. Quite interesting. I wonder if this is also to do with the way politics has transitioned into various different questions in India. But yeah, there might be many overlapping things here. But yeah, to go back to your question about these non-technical forms of smartness. So my thinking here or my argument was that just introducing technologies to make a system smarter to me seemed slightly unsmart way of thinking about them because we know a much longer history of technologies, but also scientific interventions that have been invented in one place and then transplanted in another and then eventually failed. And so I think the Indian hype on smart grid was also in many ways related to a global discourse on smart grids, which was kind of taking a crescendo then. And therefore, this kind of picking up technologies that were available and that could be transitioned into India, it seemed like was happening. So my argument was that I think what we need to do is that we need to think about how these interventions need to be tailored, they need to be contextualized. Even before that, we need to carefully think through if these technologies are indeed needed everywhere. And what job might they do? What what are we deploying these technologies for? And I do know that Indian government in some ways has made movements in a sense. We have a nationwide program of deployment of smart meters across the country through BE, I think. And so that's what I was kind of thinking about, that what is the job that we are looking at smart grids to do? So then I ended up doing a small bit of research in Panipat. Uh, you might know the city nearby Delhi. And Panipat had a smart grid pilot project that was in the process of being deployed. It was part of 13 or 14 pilot projects that were being deployed across the country. And this was funded by the Japanese government in consultation with the Indian government and the local DISCOM in Panipat. And quite interestingly, I spoke to a lot of families there about what they were expecting. And because this had not started yet, a lot of my discussion was with people who were designing it or policymakers who were kind of deploying smart grids. And so in this paper, I ended up arguing that in India, smart grids kind of focus on two key characteristics that we imagine to be very prevalent in Indian society. And this might be very familiar to you, the ideas of chal and bal. So the ideas of deception and power, in a sense. But some of the policymakers, indeed, they articulated it as chal and bal to me, which was quite interesting to hear. 
And so that they were arguing that within the Indian electricity sector, especially within the points of consumption where customers are actually trying to use chal and bulb. So they are trying to trick us or they are trying to use their power in various ways, whether through political connections or through community groups into not paying their bills or into overusing electricity or illegally using electricity. And that some of the lower level employees of electricity companies are hand in glove with them. And so we want to deploy smart grids to sort of thwart this chal and bulb of these consumers and also these subaltern lower level employees. And that kind of fits quite nicely into the longer history of privatization of electricity sector in India, where there has been a very prevalent discourse of corruption, that corruption has been very prevalent in the electricity sector and lower level corruption especially, and that privatization needs profits, of course. If you have private companies, they demand profit, and that profit needs sort of annihilation of these forms of corruption. So this move of electricity, as we can understand this move of electricity from a public good, which was being deployed through public public companies is now being fully transitioned into a private commodity. And once it becomes a private market-based commodity, it needs more precise analysis of loss and profit. And therefore, this kind of precision instruments like smart meters, etc., are being deployed. Quite interestingly, to end my answer here, I found out last year or the year before that Panipat Smart Grid pilot project actually shut down. And there were many allegations of corruption in the setting up of that project that came up. So quite interesting, full circle of this corruption discourse came about in this Panipat Smart Grid project. It's just so fascinating how things which are more technical are often seen as so objective and one would assume that it would work the same way wherever those are sort of implemented. But it's interesting to see how it finally does shape up connecting with the local realities, the micropolitics, the caste structure, all of that. So that was super interesting to know what happened in Panipat. Yeah, I think if you go to people in Panipat now, I have not been able to return there. If you go and ask them about this, I imagine that they would have a certain level of disenchantment, but also anger, because already by that time, the smart meters that were installed in their homes was the third meter that had been installed in their homes in the last three or four years, because they had moved from analog to digital meters and then from digital to smart meters. And now that the project has shut down, these smart meters have been again taken off and then digital meters have been brought back. And this kind of creates a turmoil among consumers and also a sort of increases already existing distrust towards electricity suppliers also. I want to quickly move on to a more direct question on decolonization and energy. There was this very interesting paper where you wrote that while renewable energies might help upend racialized infrastructures in particular parts of the world, such upending will be premised on the exploitation of people and communities of color in other parts of the world. It would be really interesting if you could help us just unravel this. And why do you think that this sort of angle is something that does need focus currently? I'm glad that this writing caught your attention. It came out very recently, so I'm surprised that you bumped into it. The paper sort of sketches out some of the thought process that I'm kind of struggling with, but also 
what my future work will most likely be built on. And that future work will be around questions of climate justice, both on mitigation, but also on adaptation. But that's the much wider discussion. What you're quoting here, what I was trying to argue here was on the question of just energy transitions, which is right now is a big piece of discussion for a lot of critical social scientists, at least critical social scientists who are working on climate justice and energy justice. So here right now, it seems quite normatively, but also dominant ways of responding to climate change, it seems to happen through changes in energy production. So there's a lot of focus on how we can shift our energy production or how we can transition our energy production towards what is argued as more sustainable forms of energy. So we see large-scale solar farms and large-scale wind farms. We also have a lot of discussion about green buildings. We have flagship firms like Tesla, and there are many other electric cars, which are also sort of part of this argument about responses to climate change by shifting our energy production towards more greener forms of energy, sustainable forms of energy. And there are, of course, newer inventions like Tesla mega battery that a lot of people are very keen about. And on top of all of this, there's multiple, what I feel, outrageous efforts to go to Mars and colonize Mars. But let's leave this outrageous Mars colonies questions aside for a moment. So if we think about these solar panels, electric cars, and batteries, all of these are going to need uh, various forms of resources, primarily various forms of minerals and various forms of labor that will be involved. Now, where will these come from and what might their impact be? Right. So that's a question that more and more people are asking, but it is still not a question that is part of mainstream discussion. So some of the biggest reserves of lithium, which is a key component of electric car batteries, these are in Latin America and also in Australia. And the impacts of extraction of lithium are already being deeply felt in places like Chile, where lithium is uh, seeping into groundwater table, but also there are wide scale impacts of labor working conditions and other environmental effects as well. And in Europe, Portugal apparently has been found to be a key reserve and there's already pushback by various organizations uh, within Portugal on plans of extraction of lithium. Cobalt is another key mineral for batteries and cobalt, of course, has a longer history of extraction through use in our phones and computers also. And we know the long cobalt fuel conflicts in countries like the DRC and also not just conflict, but also use of child labor and also very difficult working conditions, inhuman working conditions in many of these mines also. And similarly, there are questions about labor conditions in solar factories in China and other parts of Southeast Asia. You might be aware of an organization called Silicon Valley Toxic Coalition, which has worked for decades on electric waste. They have more recently, in the last five, six years, started talking about questions of labor justice and e-waste also with respect to solar. So they're raising these questions of labor conditions also. And on top of this, there's also the large-scale deployment of solar farms, which are rife with questions of land use and land acquisitions, which are often from poorer families through various forms of state coercion, which we have evidence there are people who have worked in India and states of Rajasthan and Gujarat and have published evidence on these things. But the key thing here, I think this comes as a surprise to many people that these forms of energy, renewable energy that we had thought as the good guys, perhaps, have these kind of questions associated with them. But for many people, none of this, I would say, is a surprise because we know from the history of energy extraction and energy use, the racial exploitation, the slavery and the indentured hood that fueled the progress of the West. 
the progress fueled in a sense, quote unquote, fueled through energy, but also through bodily energy, the progress of waste that was fueled. And now we see that being repeated in the name of urgency that is associated with climate change. I think there's a key difference here in a sense that there's no difference in terms of the history of extraction, exploitation that we saw with fossil fuel before that with exploitation of human bodily energy and then fossil energy. There is not much difference between that and now extraction of various minerals for renewable energy. But I think there's a key difference that the history of exploitation and extraction was premised on a history of colonization by the West. Now, I fear that this time countries like India will become a direct participant in this process. And that's where I think we have to start carefully thinking about not just just energy transitions in this whole debate, but also what will be the future of energy use within India and how will that determine what kind of extraction happens in other parts of the world. Right. No, I was just going to say that a lot of conversation that has happened in India when we are talking about climate or just justice in the context of renewable energy has mostly been around land conflicts, like you mentioned, for larger solar or wind farms. But the resource angle is also so interesting. The lithium reserves that you talked about are cobalt. And I think India has also started working a little bit on uh, deep sea mining, but I don't know how much of that has sort of gone ahead and what are the kind of restrictions or guidelines for that, if at all. But yeah, it definitely, like you said, is something that India should be talking about focusing on as well. I just want to also bring in one of the aspects which is also seen as a big advantage of renewable energy, which is employment. And, you know, like we just talked about in the beginning that this talk of just transition is also something that India is talking about, probably a little bit more after the net zero announcement that India did at COP26 last year. But one thing that I often think about is also the fact that we can't so easily forget the kind of employment that coal and allied industries in India still provide. And just to give this a little bit of a data perspective, there are studies that show that the coal and allied factories that we have, they provide income for 120 of 718 districts in the country. And losing these jobs could affect, say, 21 million people. These are big numbers and they, at least sitting from here, sound scary. What would probably be a good way for India to ensure that when this just transition is happening from coal towards renewable energy, how can the employment aspect of it, of creating those jobs in renewable energy be done efficiently and like you said, in a more just manner? Yeah, thank you. I think this is a really, really difficult question to think through and also very difficult question for me to answer because this question touches on a wider scale transformation of the economy in a sense, which, as you say, is hugely dependent on fossil fuels and also employment that is hugely dependent on fossil fuels. I was looking through this report that you had quoted in your question, which was quite interesting. And I was quite struck by the wide scale dependency across India, what you just said in your question also, of people on various fossil fuel based industries. But it's useful to remember that it's not just coal. This talks about wider fossil fuel industries. But the main thing that I was struck by was that they had some figures on the distribution of multidimensional poverty across India and especially focused on these districts. And this is quite stark because all these districts that are dependent on fossil fuel also have some of the highest levels of multidimensional poverty. What does it tell us? 
to me, in a bottom line, it tells me that the extraction of coal for these communities might have been a negative rather than a positive. And that extraction and use of coal or let's say fossil fuel in these places has not benefited people from these places as much as it might have benefited people elsewhere in India. Useful to also here to cite a brilliant recent work that I've been reading from Dolly Kikon on coal and oil fields in Nagaland and Assam border. Really interesting ethnographic work, which brings out in many ways the ugly reality of state-backed, militarized fossil fuel extraction in these parts of India. And so I think it brings me to the question of who is benefiting from this or who is benefiting more from this. And so if we are defending these jobs, which we should, I'll say that on the onset because a lot of people's livelihoods are dependent on them. But the level of our defense benefits who benefits from that more and who benefits from that less. This is a question that I think is not being raised in the context of India. And that's the question of redistribution. If we are indeed dependent on fossil fuel, and if we do need to be dependent on fossil fuels for some time in the future, then what is the redistributional benefit or redistributional justice question from the benefits of those fossil fuels? It reminds me of a discussion I had in my hometown with a young boy, and we were talking about some of the energy conglomerates in India who were making their wealth backed on new gas reserves that that are found in Kaveri Basin. And the valorization of these rich people in India is kind of exemplifier that we could also become like that. But in all of that, what gets lost is that the resources based on which this wealth is being created are the resources of that nation, which means these are the resources of all the people, and therefore redistribution distributional benefit of those resources, some of this data shows is not happening. For now, I think that is where we need to push. In the longer term, transition of these districts away from fossil fuel jobs is a longer question that I don't know how that would happen and how a redefinition of the economy will take place. But that's, I think, a much bigger question that needs to be thought more seriously at the national level. But perhaps you could tell me if these discussions are happening at the national level. Yeah, at the moment, I don't think so. I feel like a lot of the accompaniment to renewable energy is, oh, so many jobs that we are going to create. But I also remember for a piece that I did sometime earlier this year, I was speaking to, you know, these training centers by the government to skill the employment that would be working in these solar or wind projects. And most of these were centers that were in, say, smaller tier two, tier three cities. And I happened to speak with some of the organizers or the trainers in those centers. And they also had a lot of issues of funding as well. They weren't getting the budget and the money to do the trainings in time because these trainings often had to be residential because the people who came to be skilled came from far off villages. So it wasn't that efficient for them to do the to and fro every single day. So it does really put a question into how this transition is happening because you need that type of financial resources. You need that type of lens to at least look at this long-term planning that requires to be done while this transition is happening. So yeah, I think even I don't have a lot of answers other than the experiences and anecdotes that I have been told during interviews, but it does seem a little messy at the moment. Yeah, there is obviously a few Indian companies have or big Indian companies are now getting into various stages of the solar and electric car value chain. 
So there's investment into solar manufacturing. Reliance acquired a solar manufacturing firm, I think a Norwegian firm. Actually, they acquired a firm based in Sheffield, in my own city, which works on electric batteries. They don't work on lithium-ion battery. They work on a new, a different form of battery. And Reliance acquired that company also. So they've been acquiring some of these technologies, but also some of these value chains at different levels. Right from the beginning in the National Solar Mission, solar manufacturing was a key point. But in India, solar manufacturing has not taken off since the last decade. And maybe now there is money going into solar manufacturing. But I think a key question would be that would a lot of this solar and renewable energy manufacturing, would that be based in India? And if it does get based in India through these new investments, what would be the conditions of these manufacturing facilities? What would be the labor conditions? On the questions of just transition that we just discussed about, various questions of extraction and labor, what would be the conditions that would be prevalent in India? Because sometimes I feel scared about the wider discourse about India should be more like China in terms of its competitiveness, in terms of its global competitiveness, but that competitiveness comes at a demise of many of these conditions. So that will be something that will be interesting interesting to see, but something that we will have to keep a careful eye on also in terms of our critique towards these things or pushing them to be more just. Yeah, true. Ankit, I think that was all my questions. And this was just such a fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. It was such a pleasure listening to your thoughts and discussing your work. Thanks for having me here. It was great. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Dr. Ankit Kumar, and our interviewer, Vaishnavi Rathor, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.